Welcome to the 84th episode of the Loose Threads podcast, a show about the rapidly changing consumer economy. This episode is brought to you by Loose Threads membership, which gives you actionable analysis and insights that drive growth, and Loose Threads Espresso, your energizing and high-pressure filter for consumer news and context. We also have a newsletter that features the latest open letters to CEOs, podcasts with industry leaders, and news from Loose Threads. Check it all out at loosethreads.com. Joining me today is Bushira Azarahui, a co-founder of Orate, a direct-to-consumer fine jewelry company that is bringing the jewelry world into modern times. Our women returns much more often. They don't come just for this is Christmas holidays and Valentine's Day and Mother's Day. They want newness every month. Bushra and her co-founder Sophie Khan set out to break down the barriers surrounding fine jewelry, from the high prices to the low frequency of purchase, as well as the complex international supply chains it takes to make a piece what it is. Instead, Orate has built a business, both online and offline, that aims to change the way and frequency that women buy small accessories. Here's my talk with Bushra Azarahui. So why don't we, I guess, talk a bit about your background before you started the company, kind of what you were working on, and then we'll talk about kind of the beginning. I am Moroccan-born. <laughs> I lived in Morocco for the first 12 years of my life. I moved to Paris when I was 12 for school. I spent almost 10 years there, and I came to Princeton for school. So my whole life I was, I think, moving with school in a way. I studied math, finance after in a grad program and started in a corporate job. I traded interest rate derivatives at Goldman Sachs for almost seven years. Great learning experience. In the back About of my what hand. or why? You know when you start working at like 21, 22, and you think you know things or you, you imagine your world in one way and become something else? I think for me, it taught me how to actually interact with people. I got promoted very quickly. I was actually the youngest promoter of my class in the Americas. And it taught me about meritocracy. So it was kind of a hardcore experience. I went for trading, so that's a little bit stressful seat, but it taught me how to deal with stress, how to take risk. Who you are or as a woman or not, you know, of color whatsoever, doesn't matter. It's all about what you bring to the table. And I think that for me was an amazing experience. And I was very much compensated for us in a very meritocracy framework. And that's something that I really believe in and I try to kind of institute in my own company right now. So there are a lot of people that come in and they think potentially, you know, this is my fixed salary, for instance. And you're like, no, I think you should believe in your fixed salary and believe in the upside of this. A startup is functions a quarter at a time and chances of a startup dying are super, super high. And you should have that, you know, hunger and hustle that I think I learned a lot from it from my past experience. What was, I guess, the first inkling of the idea of the company? So it comes from a very personal experience. So Sophie and I met at grad school 10 years ago at Princeton, and we became lifelong friends. since actually our program was a bunch of boys and a few Hmm. women, as in, like, you can count them less than (laughs) in your one hand. And so she didn't like the finance route, so she started in consulting. I was in finance and she switched very quickly to fashion. So she started working on Marc Jacobs and we always had those brunch meetings. We're sitting at breakfast and she was wearing this ring that turned her finger green. She went to wash her hands and her finger turned green. And for me, gold is not a luxury. Gold is actually part of who you are, especially in in Morocco. It's, you inherit that from your grandmother and your mother and 
I think my ears were pierced when I was a month old. I don't think I had the choice. But we know the value of gold and fine jewelry. And I, I'm allergic to begin with. So I was seeing that. I'm like, how much did you pay for this? And it was $2,000 retail value. I'm like, how can you pay $2,000 retail value for something that's brass, turning your finger green, but it looks gold and you think it's gold? And we were discussing it like, okay, the market offered two options. It was either very high and brands are very highly priced or very cheap costume jewelry. And there was a huge void in the middle market type, both pricing and quality, where you couldn't find jewelry that was contemporary fashionable, but that was also well-priced and that you could afford as a woman. And then you take a step back. I'm like, okay, so... The very highly priced uh, <laughs> brands target men. They market to men. And no one was going after the women. And women now are self-purchases. We were two working women in our 20s. And we could afford, of course, the very highly priced thing or ask to be gifted for some special occasion. But we just wanted to buy an initial necklace and potentially a little bar earring that I want to wear every day. So we didn't have that. So we started from a personal experience. We did a lot of research around and we just couldn't find like the market wasn't offering that so there was a clear void we started working on this on the side as a friends project we took six months of classes at Parsons to know exactly what we're talking about it was all about jewelry design and I believe that I always like being almost the dumbest person in the room I listen more than what I say because that's I think how you should operate in a business and we took those classes but then we started dealing with manufacturers hiring people like technical designer at the time we knew exactly what we wanted in terms of look and feel but we couldn't obviously do the technicality of this and it was impossible to find a manufacturer who would work with us imagine minimum quantities and they were like who are you and it's a very male-dominated environment as well extremely traditional very capital intensive because at the end of the day your stock your inventory isn't gold so that's actual cash so I guess our full-time jobs were paying for this. So 2015, we kind of incorporated the company. We finished those classes at Parsons and we hired two people to start working with. It was like, okay, let's do this. Then we realized, okay, we don't have any external funding. It was our savings and some working capital that we borrowed from family and friends. How are we going to get our name out there? No one knew what Orate is. To give you an idea, Orate AU start is actually gold in the periodic table. Rate is kind of rate of return on your purchase but Orate also tells a story our target was women like us who just were looking for high-end quality fine jewelry at an accessible experience I emphasize accessible experience for me because it's not only about price it's when you go to a store for instance you're not intimidated by someone opening a glass box that's higher than you a little bit and he's wearing a glove and you're scared of asking for the price It came from our frustration that we wanted to solve into the market. So in the beginning, as I was mentioning, we didn't have any dollars to spend in digital marketing. So our only way for us to get the name out there was opening pop-up shops. And I remember our first pop-up was right across the street from my old apartment. I had roommates at the time, an extra room that was used for an orate office. <laughs> And the pop-up was 10 days. We went to the owners like, hey, how much would you charge on this? And he gave a price like, okay, we can only afford 10 days. And we sold out. I think at the time we had 40, 50 SKUs. We sold out of them. But for us, what was more important, it wasn't necessarily the revenue. First, it was super profitable. 
and people were actually giving us feedback on the collection itself. This diamond is too big or too small. This chain is too thick. We like smaller pieces. Uh, add more colors into your gold collection. 2016 was fully product market fit. Exactly establish what are people looking for and how can we make this whole experience better. And so you launched this in stores, not online. We had an e-commerce platform, but we had no digital marketing spent. Right. So it was launched online. There was a website that yeah. was made, but we didn't have proper traffic online because we just didn't have the right. dollars to spend. But there is something very interesting when we actually had a lot of discussions with a few friends who already had successful direct consumer companies. We were very aware of you know the marketing dollar efficiency and like how your CAC goes ballistic in the beginning and how you can drop it. So we were very well versed in that. So we were, the cheapest option for us was go offline first and offline was driving online. So that first year of complete beta, just super scrappy work of a million pop-ups that we did everywhere, kind of like Soho, Upper East and Williamsburg at the time, we still had 25% of sales that went online because those storefronts were almost those billboards that you have in the subway or also the same Facebook ads that people see online, but they just come back to you. They don't necessarily buy at the store, but they just come back and buy on, and online because now you're a legitimate brand. Do you remember how many you did in 2016? I think we did around four. Were there points in that first year, I guess, as you're doing the pop-ups and so forth, where you ever were like, we just shouldn't do this? We were super scared when we went for the longer term pop-up for three months where rent was insane. <laughs> and, you know, also the jewelry business is cyclical as a lot of businesses have their cycles, swimwear, for instance. So Q1 pop-ups were, relatively speaking, super awful compared to the December and November pop-ups. But at the end of the day, you cannot take the risk because at that stage of the business, you have no idea. But basically, maybe for two weeks, you're losing a lot of money and the last two weeks, just make it up. I think as an entrepreneur, you really see the highs of the highs and the lows of the lows. The lows are really difficult. But what I learned, and again, we're talking about my other corporate job, what shaped me a lot is I was comfortable losing money. And that's something that you have to learn on the field. And I enjoy that. If I know that for me, I just want to know if I'm losing money or if I'm wrong, why I'm wrong and how I can address it. You're running your business with the non-ego policy. You don't know what you don't know. You always want to be the dumbest person in the room and just listen. And again, it's okay to fail as long as you have a plan. And for me, that's been the learning experience from anything I've done, quite frankly, yeah. in my professional career. And so at what point did you leave your job? February 2017. All through 2016, you're still... Yeah, and there. I was a salesperson during the weekends and yeah. taking shifts after hours. When I left Goldman, I was taking shifts yeah. as a salesperson. What were some of the like more interesting anecdotes that you would hear? You talked a little bit before about you get the feedback and so forth, but I guess what were some of those most like important or kind of interesting or unexpected learnings that you were getting from just talking to people, not sitting behind your computer and like hoping that they would show up? I think I was pretty good at being a salesperson because I would, again, listen more and ask more questions to our customers. And that helped us so much. The, you have no idea the wealth of information that you get just being there. And I actually still do this. I go and Sophie does that as well. We go sit out of a store on our laptops and just hear. So the anecdotes were, number one, when someone is seeing jewelry sit on a tray and it's actual gold and actual diamonds and they ask the question so how is this so cheap is this real what does that mean so we had again 
authenticity certificates. Our jewelry is ethically sourced. How can I relate that to a customer on the spot when they're there? The diamonds are from XYZ. It's not blood diamonds above ground. The whole supply chain is in New York and we have certificates for anything. All of these anecdotes where it's actually interesting. So you sit there like, no, my product is good. And someone else is telling you, well, you're telling me you're ethical, but how is that? You're telling me you're cheaper than others. How can you make it cheaper? Because it's made here, but also because you were conditioned as a customer to think that this should cost 10x or 20x, not 2 or 3x. That's basically. So the funny anecdotes also, I think something that I want to mention. So our jewelry is laying in open containers. So anyone can come in. A lot of people are like, you guys are crazy. Like jewelry sitting there. Anyone can come into the store, take a piece and leave. Since we started with all those offline locations, we currently have four stores. We're opening two more by year end. We had two thefts. You would be shocked about the goodness of people, you know? Not everyone is a thief. It's not because you have jewelry sitting there that people are going to be tempted to steal. So you mentioned before kind of the vertical integration. You've said before about kind of having the supply chain in New York. Talk about traditionally what these supply chains look like and then talk about how you wanted to build yours and kind of what that has done for you. So traditionally, a lot of those come out of Asia, somewhere in Southern Europe as well. So what happens is a lot of brands, they have longer kind of supply chain timelines. You have a lot of people who take parts from, let's say, Southeast Asia. It's assembled somewhere in the other side of Asia. And then you can put a stamp on it designed in the U.S. And we're very familiar with that process. And it's something in the beginning, you know, we were considering, like, we, we want to be affordable. So for us to cut, obviously, slash costs, let's look at other alternatives. But our pieces are so, demand such little labor. It's not, they're intricate, but we are about, like, less is more. And we don't like the phony type designs. We're actually clean and minimal. When we did comparison, like I'm Moroccan and I, I remember our first trip that I took uh, Sophie to Morocco with me, we're sitting with the manufacturer, but it was only 15% cheaper than what would make it mm. here because gold as a commodity is the same price anywhere else. It's publicly traded and everyone knows where gold is trading. And when you make a piece out of your caster, it's stamped at that rate of gold. So you can't save that much on that first step of manufacturing. What you can save is on the labor after it. So when a piece comes out of the casting, it has to be polished. But those polishing or like assembling the diamond steps were not that much cheaper overseas. So for us, like, I want to make sure when I tell someone this is ethically sourced and I know where it is from, to have those verifications every step of the way. And it's so much easier here. And something else that helps us a lot, I know our business is very cyclical, but our women returns much more often. They don't come just for this is Christmas holidays and Valentine's Day and Mother's Day. They want newness every month. So we come up with products every month. And the only way I can sustain this business model is to be vertically integrated and be in New York, or at least in the US. And that's been working great. So the collection gets judged very often and the worst performers don't remain in the collection, but it leaves a lot of room for the newness that actually keeps our customer returning. And that drop type model has proved itself to be much more successful for us than just have every collection. There's one ring for the holidays. We're not that. Our woman wants to layer and she buys for herself and she comes back for newness and different stories. Jewelry is much more personal and personable as well. When you started, did you think you could do this all in New York? Because like people who live here know there is like the diamond jewelry district 
And then people in the industry generally know you just don't make stuff locally because you're going to overpay for it and so forth. So how did that all merge in your head? And then what was the experience of realizing, oh, actually, we could get everything we want here? No, I gave you numbers. I mean, you're overpaying potentially 10 or 15% even out of your margin. But I'm actually gaining much more customers coming back and being happy. When I show you a two-week timeline, you're much happier than someone who showed you a three-month timeline. So I actually make much more in volume. So it doesn't matter. For me, actually, the value proposition of being vertically integrated or at least being made in the U.S. is much more superior than saying I'm going to make stuff in Southeast Asia and make people wait. This is, again, comes back to uh, a lot of people think customer remains, you know, the taste taker, the price taker. No, our customers actually have much more power. And I see that through the customer journey when they go through the website and they go click on a piece when it says four week timeline. Well, chances are they will likely drop off very quickly and not check out. <laughs> but when they see it's available, mm. I see it's all in data. A lot of people haven't adapted to that yet. And we're super nerds in my team. And we just have this wealth of data that, yes, it shows in your marketing something looks pretty. But that pretty thing that looks in marketing is has been the result of all those channels and data analytics that we put together. It's like, this is our customer. This is what our customer wants. And this is what they want to see. And I don't dictate that. My customer does. So at the end of 2016, was the business where you wanted it to be? Or were there things that you wish it happened that we're like, okay, that has to be the priority next year. How did you feel at the end of that year? So our focus when we were doing this on the side was number one product market fit. We didn't do marketing because we didn't have the dollars for it. So we just had a few dollars to assign and allocate and that was for product. So I think what was frustrating for us by then is we had a significant amount of sales just being super scrappy. We got to a point where we had clients ordering from Dallas or California, but we couldn't reach out to, you know, how you build an audience and then you go for the lookalikes of those people. We just couldn't reach them because we didn't have the dollars for that. I was waiting for my visa. That's why I, <laughs> I waited for so long, my green card. So when I got it, I left right away. We were interviewing. Like You I lost your job, you mean? I left my job. How did that conversation go with your boss? It was actually interesting. Something that we managed to do very well, Sophie and I, is we were always super transparent with our managers and they were very thankful with that. As long as I did my job perfectly during the day, I can do whatever I wanted. It had to go through compliance and approval. Like, Goldman is not an easy organization to deal with, but I think they were proud. First, I was one of the few women on the trading floor to begin with especially in a trading seat. And they were actually proud if anything. It was like, look, she's doing her own thing. And they found it not amusing, but it was almost fascinated to yeah. them. And then, you know, it's like... Someone's leaving this it's place. It's like gold, golden, goldman, like all these words. It was actually very funny. But my boss was super proud. At the end, I think it was interesting. I was telling him, listen, I think we're getting to a point. Like, this is something. And he's like, are you sure you're leaving a very coveted seat. Like my seat was a very good seat. Like a lot of people would want that. I'm like, yeah, I think I'm ready. And he respected that. He remembers actually my first interview before I got in. They were like, why do you want to do trading? I was like, because first I want to run my own desk and like have more skin in the have game. your job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want to be you. But actually I just want to, it sounds bad, but I just want to make a lot of money very quickly and do my own thing. It was open cards since day one. And my boss actually was very proud of that. And he loved it. And I think I got to a point where I'm like, 
I'm going to do my own things. Like, are you sure? And then some people were just confused. I'm like, so she's leaving this trading seat to sell jewelry. I'm like, yes. <laughs> it was funny conversations. But when I left, actually, a lot of people that I dealt with in the market were reaching out to become investors. So it helped a lot. I was telling someone earlier, like, I had nothing but good things to say by my old experience. Of course, it was very stressful, of course. But you just thicken your skin and you move on. And fine jewelry is a very male-dominated business too. I'm also one of 10 kids. So I'm used to being there and like, you know, have to fight and hustle my way, but it's okay. I mean, as long as those manufacturers didn't want to work with us in the beginning and we've managed to get one who found our project amusing and interesting. He thought, oh, these people are crazy, but yeah, I'll take a shot at them and see. And now they invested. That's why I say I'm, I'm very clean mm. They're investors. And they made the right risk, and good for them. <laughs> yeah. What did they think of your pricing when you told them what you wanted to do? The manufacturers? Yeah. They thought we were crazy. They thought, like, how can you make markups on that? But they're used to wholesalers as well. They're used to people who sell through wholesale, and obviously you have to mark up your prices at least, I don't know, four or five X to break even. We did not. I'm like, the value proposition of us doing this is we're direct to consumers. So I manage my marketing, I control my customer experience, and I pay for my stores. And no one can dictate to me how much markup I can add. This is more of a broader question, but a lot of these direct consumer companies believe that they could sell at a fraction of the price that they normally would through wholesale because they don't need the margin. One, it's getting marked up by an additional party in that chain, but also that because they control all of the things that they do, it's actually cheaper to run. And I think some of these companies are starting to figure out it actually is the same or more expensive to actually run a direct business than it would to be a wholesale business. Did you find that you've left yourself enough room to run the business and explore the channels you want to? Or was some of that prediction, oh, actually, we do need a little more margin than we expected because our marketing, our retail, our et cetera, et cetera, is becoming more expensive than we anticipated. I think really since we started, because again, we didn't have external funding, we were super ROI focused. So the pricing dictated itself since day one to be comfortable for the company to run some risk. So we have obviously pieces that have super, super thin margins, but it's extremely calculated to acquire very early customers that we know will come back. It's funny, so when you say that uh, retail is dying or not dying, I think commercial real estate is reshaping itself as well with respect to that. And a lot of those places who used to cost, uh, I won't say numbers, but now they're actually a third of the price that used to be paid maybe a year ago. So there's a whole reshuffle in commercial real estate where you can actually really get very good deals and keep very slim margins and do very well. If I go crazy on my margins, I'm not staying true to my value proposition either. So my most valuable customer is my returning customer, obviously. I don't spend on them too much to acquire them. And they just keep coming back. And even my more lucrative customer is my omnichannel customer. So he sees me in store and they might not buy in store, but they buy online, they come back to the store. So I've been struggling with that. Obviously, I'm a crazy uh, numbers person, but I'm trying to strip out this causation correlation between, you know, a lot of people say omnichannel is great. But I have a hard time when I look at my customer population, try to distinguish, is it that online drove my offline or offline drove my online? It's hard. I know it works. And I don't think anyone has the secret sauce to say very confident statement and say my online drove my offline. 
maybe the first movers, Warby, obviously. But Warby had a showroom. I bought glasses from them 2010 in a showroom. There is something to be said about that physical presence, especially for higher price point items. It's not a razor that costs $10. Those are higher price points. And this omni-channel offline relationship, I just can't, at least for the data that I have, I only started spending in digital since June last year. So it's been close to 12 months of data. And I still cannot answer that question. All right. So we're in 2017. You leave your job in February. Yeah. Sophie is still, she left or she's still at her job? No, she left 2016. Okay. So she left first. Yeah. And then as you kind of enter 2017, where are you focusing? Fundraising. What are the priorities? (laughs) Fundraising Fundraising and hiring. So we needed a digital marketer who can run with this, but we also wanted like a strong ops person because our volumes were growing. Everything was happening at the same time. And while we're hiring and setting up the structures and, you know, hire potential agency, you PR, like all these things. While you're doing all of that, you have to fundraise too. It's my least favorite part of the job, but... Uh, and that was the first time uh, you'd done it. It was the first time we were fundraising, well, except from family and right. friends. When Which is like, a little hey, easier of a process. <laughs> yeah, but what we found is it was super easy for us to fundraise. Number one, I had all these people reaching out to me what happened to you? You fell off the cliff. What are you doing? <laughs> so I was like, okay, this is what I'm doing. And we got investors from that. And we have two As in old, older colleagues and... And so counterparts. Yeah. Like, and funny enough, if anything, we were oversubscribed. We wanted to raise two. We In two months, we were at 2.6. Like, we have to close this and move on. We, can't, uh, we could have raised more, but we just didn't want to go crazy with fundraising. So it was my least favorite part, but also my favorite part because I hear a lot of horror stories from other fellow startup founders where, you know, it's a little bit difficult. But why it was my favorite part? Because we were very surprised to the upside by these people shocked. Like you are raised in a seed round. Usually at this stage, you have an idea. You haven't executed on anything. Us, we had not only we lined up stores, we had products, we had the actual data and we had sales. So people were like, okay. That, right, there's that, something to evaluate. There is, yeah, there's something. So we could have serious conversations with these guys. And we're not just, you know, talking fluff. It was literally numbers. And some people were very, I'm not saying impressed. They were just shocked. You sit there and was like, okay, this is where we are. This is the plan. And I guess Objective I talked a little bit. Like, yeah, this is where we're going. And they're like, okay, you're done. <laughs> Coming back to my old life, you're done. How much do you want? Literally, some people were sizing us. How much do you want? That's the, hopefully that would be the experience on the Series A. <laughs> Very nice. So when does that close? So start fundraising, working on the deck, everything, March 2017. We closed the round end of June 2017. Gotcha. And that closing, you know how it is. Like, yes. it goes to the lawyer, everyone needs to sign a blah, yeah, escrow yeah. account. But we're up and running. Then. And then you, that's when you started to spend on digital, you said. Yeah. How did you approach that, given... You knew you couldn't before, but you also, it, again, it wasn't like you had to start the car with digital yeah. too. For you to have statistically significant data, you have to spend on a lot of inefficient things. And again, you have to be comfortable with that. So the beginning was awful. Like our CAC was insane. But six months later, we dropped it in half. We did a lot of funnel optimization. You know, in the beginning, you want to go crazy. Like, I want to target as many people as I can. I'm like, wait a second. But it, what was easy for us because of that offline data that we already had and a lot of online sales, like we made the quarter of the sales in 2016 online, we already had an idea of our customer base. 
So you can do a lot of segmentation. You can build a lot of lookalike audiences based off that. So that was saving the day. Like, okay, we thought, for instance, that our customer was much, much younger. But actually, our customer is not. They're kind of like what I try to call the older millennial. We capture a lot of younger population, but a lot of people who are a little older millennials. How yeah. it sounds I, weird, I've talked to multiple people who yeah. have found that their customer is actually much older than they thought, which is so interesting in the age of like how to target young people, how to find millennials. Like there's so much just noise about that, but it's like the money is still in a different place. Yeah. And no, they're just also intrigued. You know, when we talk modern luxury, like people who can afford the luxury, they at least have jobs. So <laughs> maybe they're not or, living with their parents. Yeah, or, exactly. Yeah. They, they want, they have jobs and our women is actually educated. She's a self purchaser. She's not waiting for a guy to buy for her, but Ironically, a lot of men are buying Orate because they also love the value proposition. It's like, yes, it's transparent. It's this, it's checking all these boxes and I love it. It came down even to the point, you know, a lot of companies obviously say give back, you know, that one for one model, Tom shoes. Well, we couldn't give back a piece of jewelry and I don't think it's going to help someone in need to have a piece of jewelry. But Sophie and I wanted to be very transparent in that too. Like I can't say 10% of my profits go to a charitable cause. It's too fluff for us like and as a customer like i want to know if you're giving back something what is it since inception actually we found charter school out of philly don't ask me why philly it's just we went to everyone almost in new york and no one they have very rigid rules and they won't necessarily work with you unless you go through a lot of approval processes but in philly they manage 15 it's a campus that has 15 schools and every piece we sell will give back a school book to this school there's a list of school books. So when you buy an orate piece, you know which school book went to where. Mm. As easy as it is. I don't say 10% of my profits go to blah. For me, it's, it's garbage. So you said that the marketing piece was definitely a learning curve. Did you think at all during that painful beginning, like this is just never going to work? Or did you know there was like light at the end of the tunnel? Like we're going to eventually figure it out. It just is going to be expensive and painful. Yeah, it was rather the latter. I, my whole uh, experience, I was very comfortable losing money or making money because when you know why you're losing money, you know how you're going to make it back, right? So that it comes back to anything. So for us, the whole 2017 experience, like who is your customer and how are you going to go after them? We knew we had proof of concept in the stores themselves. Like people, when they see it, they buy it. They touch it. They know the quality. They just buy it. So for us, it was just how can I just get that niche online and do it? So in the beginning, obviously, it was very painful, but it was budgeted for. We were actually, it's funny, we were much more conservative what we pitched. And we were surprised completely to the upside, if anything. But why we also have friends in other startups and we did a lot of research before we started spending and we hired someone who was experienced also enough to say look I know it looks awful that and you see the numbers moving if your cat keeps going higher look clearly doing something wrong especially at this stage of the business but you expect it to drop by x percent month over month at least and we were completely surprised to the upside if anything yeah what was the most you lost in a day as a trader I was going to ask that after, no. but I want to ask about, I, no, no, I, I was going to ask like, both. I, uh, yeah, 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 marketing yeah. first. Marketing. I'm not sure I could say it, but yeah, we had a pretty bad two-weeker of like 70, 80 grand of burn. That's, yeah. That was painful. Yeah. And what about trading? That I think is confidential information, <laughs> but it Many gets more to a zeros. point when let's say, yeah, and your, your stomach hurts a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like, especially when you're sitting on your desk at 8 p.m. and you just get a call. It's like, 
you want to step in my office? I'm yeah. like, okay. Yeah. But I'm, it's fine. The thing that, again, my ex-boss respected is like, okay, I'm losing because of this reason. And I know how I'm going to make it back. So it's okay. Right. Even the worst days on the marketing side were not nearly what they were on the no, trading side. No, it's harder. <laughs> Orate is your baby, right? Like, it's my baby. So for me, every dollar counts. And, and you're it's, your, thinking do- it's burn. your dollar, too. Yeah, it's my dollar, and it's the burn. Like, when you're burning that much, that's basically taken away from your how many months you can survive. You know how you people look at you and <laughs> in the cycle of a startup? What's your burn? That's, like, question number one. That counts how many months you have to live. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a few days uh, <laughs> of the life <laughs> of Orate. That hurts yeah. a lot. But I assume it's all, only gone... Yeah, no, there. we're good. Yeah. No, look, we're good. It's funny. With my team, sometimes like oh, ROI because they know we're like super ROI focused. Like sometimes you got to spend to make. It's fine. Let's do it. Let's try. Gotcha. For me, it's more if you kind of know exactly what your upside is and what your downside is and run through all the scenarios. I want to know like what is the worst case scenario? If they describe to me a worst case scenario that's okay for me, given the circumstances that they put next to it. I'm fine, but we need to try. Like as a startup, you're on the verge of failing every month to begin with. So it's okay. <laughs> yep, absolutely. At what point does the first permanent store open? First permanent store, actually, we lined it up since March 2017. Okay, so right around then. Yeah. Talk a bit about you've done a handful of these so far on shorter leases. How do you figure out, okay, we want to go do this. Here's where it is. Here's what it should be like. How does that come together? So we have a lot of data now online, so it's much easier you can kind of like sample your customers via, you know, zip code. You know exactly where they are. A big portion of our sales was New York, but actually we were selling to every state, but a big portion was in New York. And also it comes down to how am I going to keep control of this customer experience? We were not willing to open right off the bat to in California, even though it's kind of our state number two (laughs) after New York for the very simple reason is it takes time to fly from New York there. And if something blows up, you kind of want to be there. So the executive decision, given that segmentation of, so we started spending in July, 2017. And by November, we opened three stores in a batch. So we started East Coast, we stayed nimble. Our stores are profitable. So quite frankly, we can open as many quote unquote we want, like we can go crazy. But first I didn't have enough people in my team. Second, I want to be 100% in control of that customer experience that goes to the stores. Why? Because we don't view our salespeople as just sales associates. We view them as a brand ambassador. And for them to be that, they need a lot of training. They need to also associate and like have a direct line with headquarters and to be involved. So we hire fans of the brand. We don't just hire pushy salespeople. What we found extremely valuable is in the stores. I had someone actually call me yesterday about the Madison location. It's like, oh, it's like a la Apple. I'm like, yeah, yeah. It's We're trying to transpose that exact online experience that you get into the offline experience. And that line of communication, as much as in the website, you can click on About Us or Press or whatever that is to read more about the brand. I want you to have access to that into my store as well. So that's a lot of investment and it's been working. How big do you think this can get? And then how big do you want it to get? When people mention some big names, like I got my ring at X, I want Ori to be mentioned. Yeah, this is the fine jewelry contemporary brand that people go for when they're looking for modern luxury that's accessible. And it's actually very flattering. I have 
our first sales obviously were friends and family and like friends of friends. But when you see someone buying you from Japan or Australia, that's when you're like, okay, so this person has no idea who we are, not friends. They, they're not in the US at all. But there's something about this brand that made us so. Orate, for instance, is international. Something that uh, not many direct consumer brands, at least in the U.S., have in terms of. But I think it comes from our backgrounds and the product itself. It's a very easy business to scale internationally. So it's an interesting non-numeric answer for a number person. Do you have a number in your head, or you don't think about it like that? I have exit strategies in my head, but not number, uh, not like a literal number. I don't like thinking that way because you might be surprised to the upside or to the downside. For me, it's more the experience. I was telling someone, I want to be a serial entrepreneur. When I don't feel challenged anymore, it's a characteristic of my personality. Yeah. When stuff is too easy, I'm bored and I want to do something else. So if anything, I actually miss those days when Orate had no money and we were hustling our way through painting walls like that was fun because we do like those postmortems. Like, do you realize where we came from in less than 12 months. I yeah. think that's the fun part. What do you think is the most misunderstood thing about the brand? Actually, it's something interesting. We got a lot of feedback that our website looks very high-end. So when they just open without clicking on any piece, they think it's expensive. Our website conveys this luxury feel so that you can actually lose people just when they mm. see how your creative assets are. They think, oh my gosh, this is expensive. And you lose them before they click on shop and check the prices. That's something that we're working on. Hmm. How can I convey, without looking cheap, right. how can I convey that price point that I'm trying to position myself into? And then I guess coming into 2018, in terms of where do you focus now, how have you thought about this year? We're kind of halfway through and so forth. For us, it's uh, we're focusing on more eyeballs, quite frankly. I think that's the biggest focus and scaling. The team now is close to 35 wow. to 40 people. Yeah. Before we raised funding, there were like four and a half of us, me as half. And it gives you like an idea of how we are. So we're focused a lot on HR and we're focused a lot on scaling. So And that includes the store teams too. Yes. Right. I haven't scaled the company before. So for me, it's just learn. I sit and again, as I said, I just love listening. I think I'm very tough on my baby in a way because... Again, like I look at numbers like, is this ROI something good? So we spend a lot of time talking to investors who have other portfolio companies. Like, what are other people doing? How does our CAC look? And it's funny. They look at it like, why are you so harsh? And we have that with the team. We sit down. Like, because there's no ego. This business, if you have an ego, just forget about it. Call it for the day and go home. You just have to be, again, comfortable losing money, but also comfortable being told you're doing it wrong. And I think something we've been very good at is switch very quickly. When we know something is just not working, it's okay. It's cut your losses and move on. And let's not keep reverberating about what was bad. Just know why it was bad and do something else. And yep. it's okay. And then I guess as you look to the future, what's on the horizon and what are you most excited about? So we have a lot of things that we haven't done yet. For instance, anything that's influencer marketing, more stores that are not just east-west. I kind of want to go a little bit in the middle. And some very one-off incremental initiatives overseas. That's something that we're very excited about. I'm excited about, like, potentially next year I have a team of 60 people, 70 people. I don't know. Like, I'm excited about how to learn, how to manage that many people. I think for us, Sophie and I, that's going to be the challenge again. Like, how can we make ourselves available the way we are right now? Like, now we invest... Even the part-time salesperson who's sitting at the Boston store, 
her final interview needs to be with one of us because we need to be involved in that. I'm excited about learning how I can still manage doing that at a much bigger scale. There's another project that we introduced. It's the first ever styling box in the fine jewelry business. The way this works is you go online, you answer very few questions, depends on the workflow, about five to seven questions, and you tell us your preferences. I like white gold, understated pieces, day to night. I hate earrings. Uh, please put as many uh, rings as you can. And so we have an algo in the background. So what we look forward is obviously optimizing the technology internally. We are very kind of focused on the tech side of things in our company. But algo puts together like this person would be interested in this side of the collection. We add a human component into that. That's a stylist who takes that whole data. There's a, a section where you can leave as many comments as you, you want. And they take the comments, match with what the algo gave, and they put together a box of five pieces to you. So this is actually a very crazy project because no one has done this before. We send you actual pieces from the collection, gold and diamonds, for free. Not cardboard <laughs> we just get, yeah, We keep your credit card info, but you're not charged, to be clear. It's non-subscription. And this came very simply from what our customers wanted. So we do a lot of focus groups. We take feedback from people who buy online, including fine jewelry buys or people who just buy online and never bought jewelry. And we put all these groups of 10 to 15 people and we sat them down, like, what can we do better? We send surveys as well. So done nothing but just asking our customers what they want. And they said, I want to be styled. I love your collection. You say it's very easy to layer. I don't know how to layer things. Style me. So we have this new feature. I'm very excited about this. We sent almost half a million worth of gold to people within 48 hours and that sold so we're waiting for more boxes to come we have a big wait list and we're gonna see what conversions we'll get from that speaking <laughs> of risk do you expect to get that back again i believe in the good side of people <laughs> now we have a credit card uh, it's only in the u.s to be mm. clear and they have seven business days to try a return so yeah i'm hoping we'll know we get the boxes back <laughs> they sold out in two days yeah. <laughs> so it's one week so we're waiting 10 more days <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do a follow-up at some point to know if you're insolvent or not yeah. in a week our policy is 30 days uh, free shipping for returns no questions asked people can wear the piece for a month if they wanted to and return it we're super below market standards and returns. But yeah, we sent five pieces of gold. <laughs> we'll see how that ends. Yes. I'm sure it will be well, end well. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for talking. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Loose Threads podcast. You can read full transcripts of the podcast and join the newsletter at loosethreads.com. Feel free to also leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. And thanks to George Drake Jr. for editing this episode. We have a great roster of upcoming guests, including Rachel Winnard of Sopwalla, Kara Cohen of Dripkit, and Eliza Blank of The Sill. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.